I'm Erin Hyman. I want to welcome you to this panel, Transmission and Transfer of Images. Um, before we get started with the papers, I also wanted to say a quick word about the motivation for this panel and um, the stakes as I've come to understand them. And you might notice in the program that for a panel about transmission, these papers are clustered within a relatively tight um, period and geography. So I also want to um, point to the broader frames in which I think we can think about the themes that will be discussed. Print begets print. This is an old chestnut for anyone who works with books and other printed things. Multiplicity, repetition, dissemination, perfusion, those were the conditions unleashed by the printing press. Text is copied into a commonplace book only to find itself reprinted in new form. Editions upon editions upon editions of a given work are published. Translations push a text into a new language and send it on the move into a new market and community of readers. Works are pirated and put to similar ends. Type itself is recycled in the course of producing a book, set, distributed, redistributed, only to be bought up, perhaps, by a different printer in a new city. Texts and the implements used to create them were and still are rarely in repose. But images, printed and otherwise, engendered equally robust transmission and transfer. Here you see two woodcuts, ornamental motifs surrounding the figure of Santiago Matamoros. While we're familiar with blocks being used repeatedly in different texts, these images were not um, produced in that way. Not only does visual inspection betray their difference, but the two were printed an ocean apart, one in Seville and the other in Lima. The pair thus speaks not only to the mechanical transfer of a motif from one block to another, but also to the transmission or transit of that motif within the physical form of the book from one continent to another. Visual transfer goes hand in hand with geographic displacement. The travels of images pay little respect to the categories of medium and nation and thus discipline into which we often segregate them. Here, for instance, the 17th century painter Cristobal de Villalpando, active in Mexico City, used a print after Rubens produced in Antwerp to make a large oil-on-canvas painting, now in Guadalajara. The intermediality and intercontinentality of the pairing defy the rubrics into which these objects were individually studied and explain why they were not, until recently, reunited. But pairing images is simply not enough. This juxtaposition, for which I'm indebted to Yael Rice, who's in the audience, speaks eloquently to the matter, or to the material, that often falls away when we speak of transmission. Here the Mughal painter has not copied the has not copied the print, but incorporated it into the album pages he created, painting atop it to render a cropped cut long flowing locks and softening the severity of cheekbones for a sitter who now floats in the heavens amongst angels. This object recenters our attention on the hand and thus on the labor of transmission. It pushes us to ask questions what material processes made transit possible. It evokes the coffers into which books were packed and sent across the Atlantic or the Mediterranean in the holes of ships, the straw that was stuffed around them to cushion and wick away moisture so pages were pristine upon arrival. It also asks us to think about the beginning of this object's life, how designs were transferred to blocks or plates, printed, and then transferred yet again.
It's easy to lose sight of the materials between the links in a chain of transmission. This panel seeks to remind us that every print and every image is the... <laughs> Maybe I can just scream. <laughs> um, this panel seeks to remind us that every print and every image is the index of many physical processes that we might reverse engineer or at the very least reimagine and interrogate. I ask the panelists to consider three questions. I ask, this, I ask the panelists to consider three questions. How were images sent far and wide? What were the repercussions of that transmission? And what were the technical practices by which one image became another? The three papers methodologically highlight the kinds of evidence that can be used to reconstruct the physical processes of transmission and transfer. Together, they also serve to prompt us to think more broadly about what kinds of access material residue can give us to an artist's studio or the writer's study, how the vestiges of a scribe's practice of copying or a publisher's forgery remain embedded within objects, how patterns of wear or preventative reinforcement divulge the particularities of an object's journey through the world, and finally, how copies and transit can shed light on or even be thought to constitute the function of originals. So I'll leave it there, and I'll briefly introduce Catherine Rudy, the panel's moderator, who will introduce each of our speakers, and we'll hold questions until after all three speakers. Catherine Rudy, professor of art history at St. Andrews, is the author of five books, including Rubrics, Images, and Indulgences in Late Medieval Netherlandish Manuscripts, Brill 2017, Piety in Pieces, How Medieval Readers Customize Their Manuscripts, Open Book Publishers 2016, and Postcards on Parchment, The Social Lives of Medieval Books, Yale University Press 2015. Among the innumerable grants she has been awarded, truly innumerable, she currently holds a Paul Mellon Senior Fellowship to write a book about physical interactions with the manuscript in late medieval England. She's also a weaver, currently with a show titled Woven Manuscripts, hanging at Cambridge University Library through December. The exhibition includes a display of the magical underwear she designed. <laughs> with that, I leave it to Kate. <laughs> This seems to be fading in and out. Thank you so much, Erin. It's a pleasure to be here. Is everybody having a good conference so far? Lots of ideas, yes? Fantastic. Um, so we have three speakers today. Um, our first speaker is David Brewer. He's an associate professor of English at The Ohio State University. And he's recently been involved in two collaborative projects in the history of the book. Interacting with print, Elements of Reading in the Era of Print Saturation, forthcoming later uh, this year from Chicago, and also The Book in Britain, A Historical Introduction, uh, which will come out next year from Blackwell. He's currently completing a book about the uses in which authorial names and images were put in the 18th century Anglophone world, tentatively titled, titled The Fate of Authors. His talk today is uh, part of a new project, and as you can see here, his title is Copies, Transfers, and Excerpts, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Derivative. So please welcome David. Thank 
Thank you to Aaron for organizing this and to Kate for moderating and I'm sure asking uh, tough questions. So traditionally, scholars and collectors of Hogarth, much like scholars and collectors of other printmakers, have prized impressions that bear the mark of the master. Proofs, early states, anything that can get us supposedly uh, closer to the supposed act of genius at the moment of creation. Predictably, this has meant that later impressions, copies, copies of copies, copies of copies of copies, excerpts, transfers, compressions, rearrangements, and loose reconstructions by other hands have all languished, both in terms of their appeal to collectors, which if it even exists, is largely a function of scarcity. Far fewer of these copies have survived than have the Hogarthian originals, and in terms of the kind and amount of scholarly attention that's been given to them. Traditionally, when something like this uh, has even been considered, it's, been, it's either been as a passing example of how the appeal of Hogarth was so widespread that 18th century viewers were willing to accept a clearly inferior copy when the self-evidently desirable originals were unaffordable or unavailable, or else it's been regarded as an instance of opportunistic plagiarism, seeking to take advantage of the new commercial opportunities opened up by Hogarth, who is clearly both the artistic and the moral superior of the pirate. As you can probably tell by my tone, I think these approaches are not only tiresome, but fundamentally mistake both the function and the appeal of these copies and copies of copies and copies of copies of copies. In recent years, things have gotten marginally better. One of the first pieces I ever published, 18 years ago now, I tried to show how the proliferation of copies helped detach Hogarth's images from their material supports, and so allowed them to be imagined as part of the English national heritage. More recently, Faramert's Dapoiwala uh, has uh, contended that Hogarth's broad and lasting popularity resulted largely from the indirect ripple effect of countless co copies, adaptations, and quotations which were much more widely distributed and accessible than the originals, and thus made them so generally familiar. And Cynthia Roman has argued that it was the copyists of Hogarth, rather than, more than Hogarth himself, that helped establish graphic satire as the dominant visual form it became in the 18th century. It all seems like it's probably right. But I'm now thinking that uh, neither my former self, nor Dabawala, nor Roman has gone far enough. After all, we're still fundamentally making a distinction between the Hogarthian originals and everything else. And no matter how much power or significance are we assigned to everything else, we're still comparing them to the originals in a way that doesn't get us that far away from the thraldom in which they've been pent for so long. Indeed, Caroline Karpinski, from whose the print enthralled to its original, I'm borrowing my phrasing, thinks it's been that way since at least the 17th century, i.e. for longer than there have been Hogarth's. So this afternoon, I'd like to see if we can push a bit further and think about originals and copies and copies of copies and everything else in a way that doesn't turn upon a supposedly self-evident hierarchical distinction between these categories. I'm sure there are lots of ways in which we could pursue such a gambit, but the one that makes the most sense to me, given my own current interests, is to see what these various images, especially their captions and other written components, can reveal about the complexities of fictionality in the 18th century. I've long been convinced that fictionality and reference to the so-called real world were often completely entangled with one another in a manner that defies most in the period, in a manner that defies most of our customary theories about those modes, but that didn't apparently trouble many, if any, 18th century readers and viewers. 
I've also long chafed at how novel-centric our ways of thinking about fictionality tend to be. If you're interested, I have a piece on 18th century puppet theater that is in large part a polemic against the unthinking equation of fictionality in the novel. So let's see what we can learn about fictionality from this sort of abject, derivative image. Perhaps the best place to start, I think, is with an image that's always been seen to contain portraits of actual individuals, the first plate of a heartless progress. Now, the standard way we describe this image is by saying that it depicts a naive young woman just arrived in London from Yorkshire who is not being protected by those who should be watching out from her. Either the clergy, the representative of whom is too interested in his own preferment, uh, he has a note addressed to the right reverend father and God, and her family, her loving cousin in Thames Street, there's a note on the goose, um, uh, to whom she's bringing the goose, has apparently failed to show up. Accordingly, our heroine is subject to the blandishments of Mother Needham, a famous brothel keeper who is recruiting her on behalf of Colonel Francis Charters, uh, the notorious rapist, who stands in the doorway ogling the new arrival with his right hand thrust suspiciously into his pocket. Like most scholarly commonplaces, this isn't wholly incorrect. The man in the doorway does plausibly look like Charteris, compare the lips and the chin, and Needham was known for enlisting recent arrivals from the countryside, some of whom were then supplied to Charteris as maids. And this view has the support of George Virtue, one of our principal sources of information on the 18th century art world, who summarized the image as how this girl came to town, how Mother Needham and Colonel Charteris first eluded her. But describing the plate in this way makes the appearance of these two figures seem simple and straightforward. Two portraits of well-known denizens of the London sex trade inserted into the opening image of a story narrating the rise and fall of a prostitute in order to give it some realism. As you can probably anticipate again from my tone, I think it's a bit more complicated than that and that we would do well to take another look. First of all, as catalogers have long known, but as scholars have rarely considered in our fetish for early estates and first editions, the engraved lines comprising the broad we so confidently identify as Elizabeth Needham did not remain the same in the decades that followed the initial publication. Rather, in later states of the print, such as this one from 1745, the broad's face has been reworked to make her appear a different woman. The nose has been sharpened, the eyes more deeply set, the chin made a bit less jowly, the hair lightened, and she's lost several spots in her forehead. As Kevin Bork suggests in a tour de force dissertation from the University of Texas that I commend to all of you, uh, this later woman, the one on the right, uh, is Needham's successor as the Bois du Jour, Mother Bentley, or perhaps even Bentley's successor, Mother Haywood. What this means, Bork argues, is that we shouldn't regard this figure in any of its states as simply the portrait of a specific individual, but rather as the depiction of a type the celebrity bawd that was exemplified by a series of individuals, Needham, Bentley, Haywood, later Jenny Douglas, and Elizabeth Windsor. Not that Elizabeth Windsor. Um, uh, I'd like to push this insight uh, a bit step further to consider what this means for the other figures in the print. After all, they don't change in subsequent states. Yet Charters died in uh, February 1732, less than 10 months after Needham succumbed to the wounds she sustained while standing in the pillory. Why then should he be able to remain as is if she needed to be updated in order to better resemble the current example of the type that Needham had previously embodied? The answer I'd like to propose is that they're, is that they're not the same sort of being, and neither one is a straightforward representation of a historic individual. She is an ongoing type, 
the high and broad, whose significance and recognizability derive more from her position, both in the trade and the public imagination, than from anything particular to the specific occupant of that position. That is, she is the broad, first and foremost, and only then Needham, Bentley, Haywood, et al., just as George II, say, was the monarch first, and Georg Augustus, uh, husband of Caroline, lover, stag hunting, etc., only second. Charters, on the other hand, is a folk villain, a byword for the ways in which elite men with political connections could get away with a kind of sexual violence that would send their inferiors to the gallows. This difference is nicely uh, brought out uh, unless they exemplify with a caption to Eliza Kirkle's copy of this plate, which describes the scene as involving this blooming country maid, a vile procuress of her sex the shame, and the lustful colonel. Note how she gets an indefinite pronoun, a vile procuress, while he receives a definite one, the lustful colonel. She's a type, he's an epithet. A similar set of distinctions is made in one of the unauthorized copies of the authorized copy uh, that Hogarth commissioned Giles King to make. Here, the principal figures are a country girl, an old bawd, and Colonel Francisco. The latter is one of the nicknames given to charters in the press. I'm guessing that making him sound Spanish or Italian heightened the whiff of brimstone about him. <laughs> And much the same cast of characters appears in yet another of the unauthorized copies, this time the one done by TB, tellingly entitled Innocence Betrayed. Here we have a tight, blithesome damsel, a bawd, and Francisco, aka the villain. And here, just for fun, is a reverse copy of that image, a, a copy of a copy of a copy. Uh, and the, we get it still more generations. Um, those of you operating out of the UK, um, there's a apparently really fabulous collection of this of these uh, copies and copies of copies of the Fitzwilliam. I dwell on how these uh, figures are named because I hope it can help drive home just how odd a situation this is. An apparently fictional character with the initials MH, you can see them on her trunk, who exemplifies a type familiar from dozens of plays, the country girl, is interacting on the same ontological plane with both the current example of an ongoing category of celebrity, the high-end bawd, and a folk villain grounded in the real-world exploits of a particular individual. When we get these sort of encounters later in the century, when what we tend to think of as conventional fictionality is more firmly in place, they're often pretty ostentatious, if not downright weird. Think only of the moment in Matthew Lewis's The Monk when the wandering Jew puts in an appearance. Here, though, it's all presented as if it were straightforward, even when the figures take on still additional complications, such as we get in this frontispiece to The Harlot's Progress, another shift to a definite article, Hogarth's series was A Harlot's Progress. So The Harlot's Progress, or The Humors of Drury Lane, a poetic retelling of the narrative in six hudibrastic cantos. This play, which excerpts and squeezes together the central figures of the plate, uh, of the image we've been considering, pushes the entire scenario into the realm of personification. The bawd is vice at first assuming virtue's face, while our heroine is fair innocence. The copy done for the lure of Venus, another poetic retelling, continues in this vein. The new arrival is rural innocence. Intriguingly, though, we still get sneering charters, as if he cannot exemplify anything other than himself. Indeed, on the 
one, only occasion I know of when these poetic versions call him something other than Chartist or Don Francisco or the Colonel, sometimes making him speak in a brogue to drive home his Scottish lasciviousness. Uh, he is described as the Tarquin, who is basically interchangeable with his classical counterpart, and whose name, tellingly, is synonymous with his role. Chartist is only called the Tarquin at the very moment when he rapes our heroine. And as a side note, I should point out that in a nice demonstration of Kevin Bork's argument, the broad whom conventional scholarship would describe as Mother Needham is here being referred to as Bentley. So the early copyists of the Harlot's Progress were identifying a significantly broader range of fictional beings in these images than modern scholarship would tend to acknowledge. Literary types, celebrity types, folk villains, narratological functions, the villain, personifications, latter-day versions of figures from antiquity. Why should we care? And what does any of this have to do with the transfer, transmission and transfer of images? I'd like to close by proposing three answers, one of them a bit long. First of all, and I doubt this will be controversial to anyone who came out to this panel, I think the history of art is most compelling when it's done in conjunction with the history of viewing. Only then can we begin to do justice to how images have actually worked in the world. Only then can we begin to grasp the peculiar sorts of agency that art can have, or at least have imputed to it. So if viewers in the past saw a wider range of fictional beings in a set of, a series of images than we would tend to recognize on our own, I think we would do well to take their different ways of seeing very seriously. Second, and perhaps more importantly for our purposes today, I'd like to suggest that paying attention to the sheer variety of fictional and quasi-fictional beings revealed by surveying these mere derivative piracies can help us grasp how they, both individually and collectively, offer up a kind of vernacular theory in the model of vernacular architecture, an only half-articulated and unsystematic, but nonetheless coherent way of doing things. It can lay bare a kind of vernacular theory. Uh, serve as a kind of vernacular theory that lays bare many of the underlying presumptions, structures, and proclivities of 18th century representational practice more generally. A nice example of what I mean by vernacular theory can, I think, be seen in the third plate of Harlot's Progress and some of its copies. For understandable reasons, most of the attention this image has received in recent years has focused either on its place in the narrative, the constable, traditionally identified as Sir John Gonson, uh, entering the room to enter to arrest our heroine and send her to the bridewell of plate four, so this provides the, the narrative justification for how you get from three to four, or on its erotic allure. But nerd that I am, I'd like to look instead at her walls. In particular, the two prints below the window on the left. As you can see, one is an image of Captain the Keith from the Beggar's Opera, the other, a portrait of Dr. Sacheverell, the high church firebrand at the heart of the first great media sensation of the 18th century, which is to say, one is an image of what we would ordinarily regard as a fictional character, and the other, a portrait of a real clergyman. Yet they're hanging together and are positioned at just the right point on the wall to make it seem like our heroine has flicked her eyes away from them and toward us in a come-hither glance. Just look at the angle of her brows and lashes, which go to the corner of, of uh, Sacheverell. And Mal's breast is curiously, curiously mirrored by a medallion of the same size and color uh, beneath the portrait of McKeith, as if to suggest that our interest should go there as well. So we have here a little triangle of gazing, right? Mal has turned her attention from the prince to us. 
We are invited to turn our attention from Maul to the prince, and McKeith is looking out at us at an angle congruent with that of which Maul is looking out at us as if he could flick his eyes toward her the same way she flicked her eyes toward us. Why bother with such elaborate geometry? One answer, I think, might lie in the ways in which both McKeith and Sacheverell are charismatic, consummate performers who have supposedly cheated justice and been rewarded for their transgressions by, among other things, attracting lots of women. There's a nice example of this with Sacheverell in one of the looser copies of Plate 3 of A Rake's Progress. Note the prostitute up on a chair um, kissing an image of Sacheverell in a manner that seems more a drunken teenager than ardent defender of the church. Given these parallels and Maul's apparent interest in both figures, I think it becomes a real question. How much of a difference is there between the two? Not only in terms of their professions, it's almost like a riddle, how is a high flyer like a highwayman, uh, but also in terms of their ontology. What I think the positioning of these images allows us to see is that despite McKeith's fictionality and Sacheverell's reality, you can go visit the grave of the latter in Holborn, where is McKeith buried, the two are not all that different, in large part because the Sacheverell of these images, the celebrity Sacheverell, the almost martyr for the church in danger Sacheverell, is fundamentally a reputation, and so, in its own odd way, every bit as fictitious and free-floating a being as McKeith. What matters here to Maul is not the flesh-and-blood Sacheverell, who'd been dead for almost eight years by the time of Harlot's Progress came out, but rather the idea of him. And that idea is, I think we're invited to think, not unlike the idea of McKeith. One is perhaps the matinee idol for Sunday morning, the other for Friday night, but they're equally the objects of fascination and fantasy. Given my time, this will have to remain a side note, but there's an intriguing variant on the scenario I've been sketching out in uh, Kirkwell's copy of this image, which substitutes Miss Fenton, i.e. Lavinia Fenton, the performer who first played Polly Peachum in the Beggar's Opera for Sacheverell. Here again, I think oh, we're invited uh, to consider how much of a difference there is between an actress who so captivated her audience that she became the talk of the town and the mistress of a duke, and a fictional highwayman whose charm seemed equally far-reaching. The third and final point I want to make returns us, I hope, to my title. As historians of the visual, I'm going to make a polemical claim that we can and should learn to love the derivative, the supposedly derivative. Not perhaps as connoisseurs. We can all probably agree that the draftsmanship in a copy like this, or this, or even this, leaves something to be desired. But as the tremendous and exciting advances in book history over the past few decades have been made largely possible by the recognition that reprints and used and soiled and broken copies are often far more revealing than the pristine first editions traditionally prized by collectors, so too, I think, we can learn to make far better and far more extensive use of the kinds of evidence presented by transfers and copies and excerpts that are, at best, several generations removed from the hand of the master. Thank you. Thank you so much. So several failures of real or or uh, fictional magical underwear. Um, Elizabeth Bacon Eager, 
uh, finished her dissertation at Harvard not so long ago, and she's recently been appointed at uh, SMU. And uh, she finished her doctoral dissertation, which was about drawing as a system for the production of knowledge. And that's related to the topic that she'll talk to us about today, which is called John Jenkins' Ingenious Mechanics, the Visual and Physical Construction of Authorship in Early America. So please welcome Elizabeth. I want to add my thanks uh, to Kate and Erin for organizing this panel and um, moderating it. And um, I think there's going to be a really interesting conversation that develops out of these papers. Um, today, I want to begin with an instance of image transmission, not just across space, but across time. So the drawing you see here on the left was produced in Boston in 1835. The image on the right executed here in Philadelphia in the last decade of the 20th century. The reappearance of this image 300 miles away and almost 200 years after its original incarnation is no ordinary instance of copying. In spite of the great temporal distance between the two images, both drawings were in fact executed by the same hand. That hand belongs to this automaton designed and built by the Swiss clockmaker Henri Maillardet around 1805, and now exhibited at the Franklin Institute just a few blocks away. Now, when we think about image transmission, particularly prior to the 20th century, we tend to look for signs of direct transposition from one uh, form of support to another. For example, the gentle cloudiness of the draftsman's counterproof is a sign that two paper surfaces have come into physical contact, or the plate mark can see in the upper left, maybe hard to see plate marks. Anyway, the plate mark on an engraving that signals the immense pressure uh, that's required to transfer an image from the copper matrix to the printed page. And even when there's no direct physical contact between original and copy, as in the gridding of a cartoon for reproduction at full scale, we can see that transmission has taken place with minimal disturbance to the image's essential form. But as a technology of reproduction, the automaton functions far differently, more akin to your desktop digital printer than to uh, an intaglio copper plate. Wound by hand crank, the automaton can produce seven different designs encoded on 72 irregularly shaped cans. There are three levers, each of which corresponds to a different axis of motion, and these levers translate uh, the profile of that can into uh, the movements of the automaton's jointed metal arm. And Mayade's translation of the original source image um, from the page into these brass cans, the form of that image had to be effectively destroyed and then reformulated in a sort of rotational logic rather than a um, planar one. And so um, what happens in this moment of uh, transformation is that the automaton actually, the automaton actually encodes movement rather than form. And thus its mechanical memory permits the transmission of images uh, long after that source material has been destroyed. Now I've been, um, I've uh, begun with this discussion of Maillardet's automaton in order to highlight a blind spot in the history of images in motion. 
when historians look at the transmission and transfer of images, even if they are concerned with the technology of that transmission, as we are today. Uh, they often forget a central instrument of that technology, which is uh, the human body. The automaton, in all its uncanniness, dramatizes the body as a programmable instrument, one that carries with it a remarkable store of knowledge encoded in cerebellar and muscular memory. As bibliographers, we are accustomed to thinking about knowledge as it is carried both on and in the page. But today, I'd like us to think a little bit more critically about the relationship between the body and the book. Now, my broader research focuses on a moment of profound change in the 18th and early 19th centuries. As a burgeoning trade in encyclopedias, scientific journals, and instructional manuals sought to extract technical knowledge from the body and then shift it to the printed page. The most famous example of this is probably Diderot and d'Alembert's Encyclopedia, which relies upon a series of workshop scenes and visual inventories to clarify the complex technical descriptions contained in the text. But the publication I want to talk about today uh, takes a very different approach to the problem of embodied knowledge, uh, doing so from the really relatively humble uh, and seemingly limited context of handwriting. John Jenkins's The Art of Writing was the first penmanship manual to be both authored and published in the United States. It was issued first in 1791 and then reissued with an expanded introduction and program of illustration in 1813. It's a rather modest size and lack of polish lie a remarkably sophisticated program of instruction that's underwritten by an innovative use of the printed page. And although its purview is simply the reproduction of the written word, as Michel Foucault has argued, handwriting presupposes a gymnastics, a whole routine whose rigorous code invests the body in its entirety, from the points of the feet to the tip of the index finger. To train the penman's hand, then, is to train the whole body. And through Jenkins's text, I believe we can access a new understanding of the body as an instrument of image transmission and transfer in the early industrial age. So Jenkins's pedagogy is structured around the acquisition of six principal strokes seen here that could be combined and recombined to constitute any of the alphabet's 26 characters. This pedagogy proceeds from the premise that penmanship is a mechanical art that should be mechanically taught. And referring to the penman as an ingenious mechanic, Jenkins conceived of the written word as a syntactical machine one that could be assembled from a set of simple, interchangeable components. Now, the 1813 edition of the manual begins with simple accounting of these six components and explicit instructions on their formation and recombination. These pages describe the construction of each letter in detail, um, followed by instructions as to appropriate thickness and the length of each basic stroke, and then as an uh, illustration of how this stroke might combine with others in order to form more complex letters. Following this introduction, we find a series of summary charts in which each of these characters is drawn out stroke by stroke and then um, sort of assembled before our very eyes. These uh, charts are followed by copious directions for appropriate posture and a proper grip, and a series of exercises of the pen, postures and movements <coughs> that were executed uh, with a dry quill, no ink uh, necessary, so that even before the student puts pen to page, uh, the body is accustomed and trained into 
uh, proper form. A subsequent discourse on the movement of the pen connects the letter's elegant proportions to what Jenkins calls the proper, natural, and easy motion of the fingers. And this proper, natural, and easy motion is trained through what Jenkins calls uh, a series of skeletons. Like a jig in a machinist's workshop, these skeletons delineate a physical structure around which the pendant's movements can be built. In the jade stroke, seen here on the left, a pair of converging lines guides the downstroke's taper, signaling to the writer a gradual release of pen pressure. A carefully placed circle secures the radius of the lower swell, while the elongated M dash acts as a spacer to measure out the upstroke's dotted line track. Now, in order to understand the innovations of Jenkins's instructional method and the novelty of his illustrations, one has to examine the conventions of the copybook tradition that preceded it. Prior to the art of writing, handwriting instruction in America was based on professional copies or exempla, either executed by the pupil's own instructor or distributed in printed copybooks. Uh, and this latter uh, form became more and more common uh, in the latter 18th and early 19th century. Now, at its most basic, the copybook was a set of simple model alphabets and aphorisms. But in its more spectacular forms, uh, such as those seen here, the genre exhibited numerous and varied scripts, each of which served as a florid advertisement for the master penman's own virtuosity. Widely used in the American colonies and early United States, George Bickham's Universal Penman on the right consists of 251 luxuriously engraved plates illustrating work by 26 of England's most renowned penmen. As evidenced by the use of the term copy book, the transmission and transfer of images was central traditional methods of penmanship instruction. Here I'm showing a group of four copies. The two plates on the left come from Bickham's Universal Penman, and the two on the right from Adia Holbrook's South Writing School in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, produced, both produced in the 1760s. So the one on um, second from the right is produced by Holbrook himself, uh, the master penman, and the one on the right by Samuel Chapman, one of his students. So using text and letter forms from Bickham's first page on the subject of liberty, Holbrook produced this handwritten copy to serve as a model for his students. These students, however, appear to have had access to the copybook itself, as evidenced by Samuel Chapman's adaptation of the text. Uh, from the second page on liberty uh, to the graphic model provided by his instructor. As part of an emulative system of education, the student's act of copying from these master texts was thought to facilitate a twofold notion of character formation. It not only trained the hand in proper penmanship, but the imitation of the hand was also thought to foster an imitation of the mind, a desire to reproduce the thoughts and feelings of the individual whose work was being copied. Copying thus served the purpose of forming both an individual's written characters and his moral character. Yet this emulative system was profoundly complicated by the basic structures of reproduction through which the penmanship copies were made and circulated. As advertisements for the scribal skills of the master penman, the printed copybook actually perpetrates a subtle fraud. Publications like Bickham's Universal Penman sought to convince viewers that what they saw was, in fact, the authorial inscription of the master penman's own hand. But what the viewer actually received was an image reformulated and transmitted through the hand of an engraver. And indeed, this sleight of hand, if you will, would have involved a fundamental reorganization of the practice of mark making. 
beginning with the basic orientation of the body to the mark-making surface. Uh, compare the images of writing and intaglio engraving provided in the encyclopedia again. Although the delicate pose of the penman, uh, seen on the left, is it's to some extent a stylization we can acknowledge, um, but one can't help but contrast it with the engraver's kind of hunched embrace as he uses both hands to apply a countervailing force to the surface of the copper plate. And the lightness of the penman's feather quills, again, makes a sharp contrast with the hard edges of the engraver's tools, tools designed not to float across the surface of the page, but to bite into a resistant metal plate. When it comes to the line itself, the penman's scroll is produced by maintaining a fixed angle between hand, pen, and page. In this way, the line's thickness changes according to the orientation, the pen nib's orientation to the hand's vector of motion. In contrast, oh, we didn't. Okay. I'm going to let you watch this for just a second, and then I'm going to shut it off because of the sound. And as I'm pushing the plate, a curl of copper is emerging. And that curl of copper is called the burr. When it gets to the end of the line, I pulled out the bureau to a perfect point. So I engage the tool. Okay. In one of Oops. Um, so, in contrast to the sort of um, the movement of the penman's hand. Uh, the engraver's cur curve is created, as you saw, by keeping the burn fixed and rotating the plate beneath his hand. The thickness of a line is thus determined not so much by its um, width on the printing matrix, um, but by its depth, as a deeper well holds more ink. This means that the engraver must translate the subtle variations in pressure, uh, in the lightest change in the um, penman's pressure, into a very shallow relief uh, on the copper plates surface. And given these distinctions, the translation of the written line into the engraved one is not so much an act of transcription as it is one of bodily transformation. So when we see a set of copies like these, what we are witnessing is an extended chain of production and reproduction <coughs> in which form and process travel along separate channels. The notion that through the act of copying, the student's body and mind might be formed in tandem is undermined by the fundamentally different physical processes used to produce the printed and penned copies. This is where Jenkins's pedagogical innovations enter in. Trained in the 18th century's emulative tradition, Jenkins strongly believed in its association between proper penmanship and a proper frame of mind. His art of writing actively promotes the idea of a common standard in handwriting, as well as the social and moral improvements that instruction uh, based on such a standard might provide. However, Jenkins' method and the program of illustration he uses to produce it construct an alternative understanding of the relationship between original and copy than that uh, which we find in the copy book. In contrast to the universal penman's hypertrophic displays of ornamental flourish, uh, these are you know, engravings that uh, belie the material distinctions between pen and print. In the art of writing, instead, we have engravings and woodcuts that sit awkwardly on the page neither part of the typeset text, nor a convincing replica of the pen marks they direct the reader to reproduce. 
These infelicities are the result of more than faulty craftsmanship. They are the natural consequence of Jenkins's pedagogical approach. Where the universal penman offers images, the art of writing offers diagrams, showing movements to be enacted rather than images to be reproduced. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Jenkins's diagrams functioned like the jigs in a mechanics workshop, controlling and standardizing the hand's vectors of motion. But I think it's no accident that these illustrations also mimic the appearance of diagrams in period texts on physical mechanics. Repurposing typography's lines, dashes, and dots to, um, sorry, repurposing typography's lines, dashes, and dots to serve as printed frameworks for the handwritten character. Jenkins's diagrams depict the lines of force along which the pen should be applied and the points of resistance around, around which a letter might be shaped. As in the diagrams that populate William Emerson's Principles of Mechanics, seen here on the left, line slips between signifying substance and the description of motion, suggesting the ways in which the written character is really just a trace of the hand's movement and the operation of one mass upon the other. There's an exceptionally evocative passage in the introduction to Emerson's text, in which he describes the underlying set of assumptions that define the study of physical mechanics. He writes, we are to suppose all planes perfectly even and regular, all bodies perfectly smooth and homogeneous, and moving without friction or resistance, lines perfectly straight and inflexible without weight or thickness, cords extremely pliable, etc. For though bodies are defective in all these, and the parts of matter whereof engines are made subject to many imperfections, yet we must set aside all these irregularities till the theory is established and afterwards make such allowances as is proper. This rather poetic description of the physicist's mathematical abstractions also serves to clarify Jenkins's instructional methodology. Though bodies are defective and subject to many imperfections, through careful training, they might gradually approach the ideal of movement without friction or resistance, of producing lines perfectly straight and forms perfectly smooth and homogeneous. In asserting that penmanship is a mechanical art that should be mechanically taught, Jenkins sought to posit not only the written word, but also the penman's body as a machine whose parts might be individually fine-tuned and then assembled into a device uh, that functions with clockwork-like precision. The letters produced by Jenkins' ideal penman are perfectly formed not because they are based on some authoritative master text, but because they proceed from certain fixed physical principles. In the end, Jenkins's penman is a flesh and blood equivalent to the auto automatic draftsman with which I began the talk, an instrument of image transmission that relies not upon the imitation of form, but upon the reproduction of movement. The illustrations that accompany the art of writing are akin to the brass cams that drive the automaton, patterns that reform the letter in terms of motion rather than resemblance. This emphasis on the reproduction of movement over the reproduction of images represents a unique moment in the history of the book, one that clarifies the difficulties inherent in the extraction of tacit knowledge <coughs> from the body or transfer to the printed page. In The Art of Writing, Jenkins affects a synthesis of textual and embodied knowledge, using the printed page not to reproduce the image, but to deliver a set of visual codes, a program, if you will, through which the enactment of that image might be transmitted and transferred. Thank you.
Thank you so much for that thought-provoking talk. I think we all became very aware of our bodies and how we were making our notes, those of us who still use a pen. Um, our third and final speaker for this session is Roger Gaskell, who is an antiquarian bookseller specify, uh, who, who specializes in scientific, medical, and technical books. Um, he is an affiliate in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Cambridge. And next summer, he will be teaching a course here at Rare Book School. And um, he is at work at an, on an edition of the library catalog of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons, which I very much look forward to. So please welcome Roger. Thank you, Kate. Sure. Thank you, Aaron. Um, it's great to be here. Um, in um, in November, I'm like seeing that in my there we go. In November 2015, I visited Nicholas Bell, recently appointed librarian of the Wren Library at Trinity College, Cambridge. He showed me a collection of woodblocks for mathematical diagrams housed in an old oak Bible box with a note in my father's handwriting identifying them as the blocks for Roger Coates' Harmonia Mensurarum. Um, <coughs> Coates <coughs> was the author of the second edition of Newton's Principia, printed at Cambridge University Press and published in 1713. Since the geometrical diagrams in Coates' book are similar to the diagrams in the Principia, these blocks should be relevant to the printing history of the Principia, and I hoped would reveal something about the workshop practices involved in printing one of the most celebrated books in the history of science. In this paper, I will show that this is indeed the case. What is this to do with the topic of this session, the transfer and transmission of images? The blocks for both Newton's Principia and Coates' Harmonia Mensurarum were cut in London, but printed in Cambridge. Coates sent his drawings um, from Cambridge to London for the block cutter to work from, and they were first used in London to print an article in the Philosophical Transactions. Later, they were sent to Cambridge to be printed as the first section of the Harmonia Mensurarum. Corrections to the Newton blocks were made both in London and Cambridge. The toing and froing between London and Cambridge, 60 miles apart, a day's travel, prompt us to ask, what is it that is transmitted or transferred? I will first describe um, what is in the collection of uh, the collection of woodblocks. Then I will discuss the letters exchanged between Newton and Coates for the light that they throw on the printing history of both books. And finally, I will consider what the blocks and correspondence reveal about the usability, accuracy, and design of these two books. I, I began by arranging the 130 blocks in the order in which they appear in Coates' Harmonia Mensurarum. This all went well, except at the end of the process I found that I had seven blocks left over. I felt like I'd taken a clock to pieces and put it back together again, and I had several pieces left over. I must have, I must have left something out. But no, four of the blocks fairly quickly fell into place as unused variants of diagrams or blocks that had got damaged and had to be replaced in, in Coates's book. 
but that still left three unaccounted for. Coates' role as the editor of the Cambridge edition of Newton Principia made that the first place to look, and I asked to see a copy. And of course, I was bought a copy annotated by Newton. <laughs> so this was my eureka moment. I now had in front of me blocks which had been handled by Newton, cut for the Principia, probably the only physical survivors of the materials assembled for the printing of the book. I still, I still need to examine more copies of the 1713 Principia to see if these blocks were used before they were, were rejected. I mean, you can see um, it's actually, it looks rather bleached out, but there is ink on this block. It has been printed from, um, but I think possibly only in, only in proof and then, and then rejected. The most striking thing um, about the, the blocks as physical objects is the sculptural nature of the raised lines and the, and the lettering cut in the wood, surrounded by the deep and roughly gouged out areas that leave white space on the page. The lines vary in thickness below the surface of the block. It's only when looking at the printed book that the precision, precision and fineness of the perfectly straight lines and smooth curves can be appreciated. And it is then hard to believe that they have been printed from wood blocks cut with a knife. Um, but this is indeed the case. On the blocks, you can see the clean cuts of the knife on either side of each line, and the marks um, of the chisels and gouges used to clear the voids. Striking, too, is the occurrence of printer's type set into some of the blocks. The greater part of the lettering that you see printed on the page is the impression of letters cut in the block. But what is virtually impossible to tell from the printed pages is that in 10 of the 125 Coates blocks, one or more of the letters are printed from type. Rectangular slots are cut right through the block and individual pieces of type are wedged in place. Many of these pieces of type are still present, though over time some have fallen out. This is physical evidence of the process of correction. Proofs taken from the blocks, or I think more likely proof sheets um, with the block printed with its surrounding text, must have been proofread by the author or editor, and the block then taken out, corrected, and replaced for the press run. Um, I will now turn to the, um, the Newton Coates correspondence. This is all the, the published um, correspondence. Um, I can't claim to have done any um, hunting in the archives. Born in 1682, Roger Coates was more than 10 years, sorry, was more than 40 years Newton's junior. Newton's Principia was first printed in London by Joseph Streeter and published by a group of booksellers in 1687. Work on the second edition, printed in Cambridge, um, began in 1708 but was not completed until 1713. To begin with, Newton intended only to reprint the first edition with corrections, but Coates persuaded him to undertake a thorough, thorough revision. After Coates' early death in 1716, at the age of 33, Newton wrote to Coates' cousin, uh, Robert Smith, if he had lived, we would have known something. The fruitful co collaboration between Newton in London and Coates in Cambridge over the five years that the book was going through the press was conducted by a correspondence which includes valuable details about the production process, including the preparation and correction of the woodblocks. 
We first hear about the blocks in a letter from Newton to Coates, dated 11th of October 1709. Newton tells Coates that the blocks are being cut by a Mr. Livebody, and that a number of blocks have already been sent to Cambridge. Further blocks will follow after the first few sheets have been proved. A few weeks later, the great classicist Richard Bentley, who was sponsoring the new edition, writes to Newton that five sheets of the book have been printed off, and that six would have been done had we not stayed for two cuts that Rowley carried to town to be mended by Lightbody. Printing was held up, in other words, while two blocks were sent back from Cambridge to London to be corrected by Lightbody. He's sometimes Lightbody and sometimes Livebody in, in the correspondence. Since these corrections were done by the block cutter, I think they were probably done by plugging the block and recutting the erroneous lines or lettering, rather than inserting type. I say this because the block cutter is less likely to have had access to printer's type than the printer. I think it is safe to assume that corrections made with inserted type were made in the printing house. So Newton is in direct contact with the block cutter in London, directing the cutting of the diagrams for the second edition of the Principia. But when Coates wants blocks done for his work, he also wants them done by Lightbody. And on the 25th of May, 1712, he writes to Newton... Um, I sent you by Dr. Bentley a small treatise of my own concerning logarithms, of which the title is Elementa, Logar Logar excuse me, Elementa Logometriae, together with the figures belonging to it. I desire the favour of, of, you, of you to deliver them to Mr. Livebody to be cut in wood and to give him your directions if he meets with any difficulty. If you think I may venture to publish it, I shall be glad to know what may be corrected or altered, either in the matter or expression. So this says much for Coates' relationship with Newton, that he can ask Newton, now in his late 60s, and a notoriously irascible, difficult man, to help with his own first foray into print. And he even asked Newton to work with the block cutter if anything is unclear. Newton did arrange to get the blocks cut, but he never got around to, to reading Coates' paper or at least a comment. He did read it, but he didn't comment on it. <coughs> From the point of view of the woodblocks, this is the key letter in the correspondence. Coates' paper appeared in the Philosophical Transactions um, of the Royal Society um, in the volume for 1714, which was printed by William Innes, a publisher specialising in scientific publications, who used some of the best printers in London. The paper was reprinted using the same blocks, but of course a new setting of type, uh, as the first section of the Harmonia Mansurarum printed in Cambridge. So this letter shows that the 33 blocks of the Logometria were cut by the same hand as the blocks for the diagrams of the Principia. Thus what the Coates blocks can tell us about the cutting and printing of diagram blocks is, of diagram blocks is also applicable to the Principia. Four of the log Logometria blocks have been corrected with type inserts. I showed you two of these earlier. And these corrections are present in the Phil Trans paper. In other words, the corrected blocks with their type inserts were sent from London to Cambridge. After Coates' untimely death in 1716, Robert Smith, who succeeded Bentley as Master of Trinity, saw the Harmonia Mensurarum through the press. So it makes sense that Coates' effects included the blocks used to illustrate his own work 
as well as the three rejected Principia blocks. But I assume that, these, that the rest of the Principia blocks would have been returned... Um, yes, I'm, so, I'm sorry, so that the, the, the three rejected blocks were returned to him as the editor. I mean, they weren't used, so he had them. But I think the rest of the blocks for the Principia must have stayed at the press and presumably at some later stage um, thrown away. And they weren't used for the, th the third edition, which was, which was printed in London. So I now want to come to three aspects of the Cambridge edition of the, of the Principia that are suggested by the blocks and the documents. These three elements are the functionality, accuracy, and elegance of the book. Since we can only hold a mental image for 30 seconds, Mathematical diagrams need to be constantly in view as we work through a mathematical argument. Woodblocks are ideally suited for this purpose as they can be combined with type and printed in close proximity to the text. But as we have seen, achieving this integration could mean holding up the production of the book when the block was not ready at the same time as the text. Sometimes, Duplicate blocks were cut if they were needed on two pages which were on the press at the same time. So these are two, um, two blocks for the Harmonium and Zurarum, which are incredibly similar. I mean, it, it takes quite a long time to, to, to find differences. And, and what's really extraordinary is that the corrections made with, with, with cutouts are, have, have been made in both blocks. So the same error was cut in both blocks and then had to be corrected both times. Um, and in the, in the, in the other uh, way of dealing with this problem was to put, the, was to put the, um, the sheet through the press twice, or rather three times, once for one side and then twice on the other side, leaving a space and then running it through to fill the block into the space. And the Cambridge University Press ledgers show um, the uh, pressmen charging for, uh, for sheets printed three times for this, for this purpose. Furthermore, good press work was required but good press work required extra care, as I will discuss in a moment. Printing woodcuts in text is not actually as straightforward as, as is sometimes assumed. So the next issue um, is accuracy. Because the lettering of diagrams appears arbitrary to the block cutter, and we're dealing with very high-level mathematics here, errors in copying or block cutting are bound to creep in. As we saw earlier, when errors in the block were picked up in proofreading, the block could be sent back to the block cutter to be mended. And I suggested that this was probably done by plugging and recutting, which would be undetectable when printed, so we may never know if the Principia blocks were corrected in this way. But none of the blocks for the Harmonia Mensurarum have plugs, but there are ten which are corrected with inserted type. Correcting the lettering in the, on the diagram was, in this case, presumably carried out alongside corrections to text in the printing house. So correcting the lettering on a diagram and correcting the text was part of the same process. So finally, I want to talk briefly about the um, elegance and the, uh, of the layout and the press work. One of the difficulties of printing woodcuts in text is that in order to achieve clean lines and an even tone between text and image, adjustments need to be made to the height of the blocks. They have to be actually slightly lower than, than type height. And this, the amount of the, the actual height will depend on the density of the image and the amount of white space around it. 
Apparently the broadcaster Lightbody was skilled in this and offered to come down to Cambridge to, to do it. But when the university printer checked out his references, he reported back to Bentley, who then wrote to Newton. I proposed to our master printer to have Lightbody come down and compose, which at first he agreed to. But the next day he had a character of his being a mere sot and having played such pranks that nobody will take him into any print house in London or Oxford. And so he fears he'll debauch all his men. So we must let him alone. And I dare say we shall adjust the cuts very well without him. <laughs> and of course the Cambridge printers did do very well without him. Woodblocks um, were always, as I said, made, made lower than type height and then the adjustment was made by um, pieces of paper or card stuck on the back of the blocks. The layout and presswork of the Cambridge Principia is superb in comparison with other books of the period and this was not achieved without thought. Fine Italian paper from Genoa was purchased before printing began and Bentley was at pains to point out to Newton the legibility of the typeface and the layout which was based on Huygens' Horologium Oscillatorium printed in Paris in 1673. Bentley wrote that our English compositors are ignorant and print Latin books as though they were, as they were used to print English ones if they are not set right by one who used to observe the beauties of the best printing abroad, i.e. me, Bentley. Um, we can now better understand the fine cutting of the blocks, their correction and careful adjustment for printing, and the nicely judged frames of white space around the blocks, harmonising um, with, the, with the spacious margins. All these works, all this works to satisfy Newton and Coates's requirement for accuracy and Bentley's ideas of typographic elegance and legibility. In conclusion, I'm going to return to the transmission of images. There's one engraved plate in the Principia showing the path of the comet of 1680. It's the same plate that was used in the London first edition of 1687 but with the page number indi indicating where it should be bound in the new edition added. The right at the end of the long drawn out process of editing and printing, on 8th of March 1713, Coates informs Newton that the text referring to the plate falls on page 465. Newton gets this, this number engraved on the plate and arranges for the requisite 750 copies to be run off by a rolling press printer in London and three weeks later, the impressions are sent to Cambridge by carrier. As we have seen, the blocks for the diagrams were also made in London, but in contrast to the engraving of the path of the comet, it was the printing surfaces, the blocks themselves, that travelled to Cambridge, not the impressions from the plate, as in the case of the comet. Some of the Newton blocks were corrected in London, and I've argued that further corrections were made in the printing house in Cambridge. The study of these blocks shows that when we talk about the transmission of images, we have to ask what exactly is transmitted, the diagram or image, the printing surface, the impressions taken from it, and what is the transmission process of corrected proof sheets, revisions and corrections. The transmission of images is a complicated business. Thank you.
to invite yeah, all three speakers to bring them on stage. Is this on? Is this should be on? Okay, very good. in the 
1813 edition. And one of them is signed by um, Thomas Chambret, who um, actually figures another part of my project as a drawing instructor at West Point. Um, so, and he's also appears as a French, uh, as an instructor of French and a drawing uh, dancing master in New York. Um, so his training background is rather uh, very eclectic and um, probably not the sort of global specialty uh, that our Canadian folks are trying to deal with. Yes. Um, can I ask a question to that point? I know you had a question first. Um, so you're saying that this one individual had mastery in a number of different arts that are highly gestural or physical. I wouldn't say mastery is or, or some, <laughs> some, <laughs> some practice. I was wondering if you looked at other kinds of guidebooks that are being printed in this period for music, for dance, for other modes of um, instructional books and also drawing books. I know there are lots on like drawing and artisanal production in this period. And do you get the same, if you have looked at that broader corpus, um, do you get the same ethical and moral aspect? Um, or is it because handwriting is being pitched to the very young? Or is it being pitched to the very young? I'm going to hand the mic away now. <laughs>
um, as we all know. But there are plenty of other, I mean, there are some there are wood, wood blocks cut for um, Woodbeck Street Botanical Encyclopedia, Padre Bookseller, um, at the end of the 17th century, which are a, a handful of them, a couple of handfuls, are now in the Millennium Society. They're not in the catalogue. <coughs> I only know they're there because, because a friend of mine told me about them. But it's humiliating that we know so little about these. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> The, what the, the, the matrix, matrix reloaded? Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, so um, Elizabeth Savage and Ad Steinman um, recently organized, and, and Giles Bergel, um, recently organized a, a conference in London called The Matrix Reloaded, which was precisely addressing these issues of where do we find these things, how do we study how do we study them? How do we incorporate them? Incorporate them in our practice. So I think we'll. Hit, so keep an eye on the matrix reloaded. I think more will more will come out of this. Um, I should just say um, I'm Shelley Langdale, um, and I'm a curator at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and I'm also the president of the Print Council of America. And we've just embarked on a survey among our members um, to start to begin, hopefully, to build a database to find out um, where there are holdings of matrices. The Americas. Um, it's the beginning of a long progress project, I think. Um, but I know that also one of the things we learned is there's a graphic portal um, that has been put together by a consortium of German museums that's going to be launched in November um, that includes matrices as well. So I think we're at the very beginnings of all of this, but there are folks out there that are trying to make it possible to make these more accessible. developed amongst the three uh, papers around this idea of, of character. Um, so you have Mr. Live Body, who's also Mr. Light Body, who has the character of a sot. And then you have the automaton, who's not a live body, um, but these questions of posture and, and lightness, um, and then the character that, that uh, Elizabeth described of, of, of both sorts, the character of the letters and the character of the mind. Um, and then um, this question sort of aimed at some of the ideas that, that David was thinking about with um, you know, the, the sort of the person and the actor and the character sort of all appearing in these images in sort of the same sort of plane of reality, as it were. And so I guess I'm just wondering if you can speak to this sort of letters and images and people are all sort of floating around and, and um, inhabiting the same space of, of fictionality and of fraud and of, of representation and transmission. Um, and I'm just sort of curious about sort of the, the theoretical and the practical connections of these things. I think your, your talk really made me think about Well, um, these are things I'm still very much grappling with. And often I find myself saying variations on, it's more complex than we tend to acknowledge, and the 18th century liked it that way, uh, <laughs> which is not a very satisfying uh, answer. And I hope to have a better one. And, a few years, but I think that you're right that there uh, are all these 
these different kinds of interactions. There are more varieties of you know of fictionality that are dreamt of in your philosophy, uh, and uh, that we should attend to them. And I suspect that certain media work better than others for these kinds of the slippages. And maybe they're the ones where there's a little distance from the human form. I've seen a lot of this in the high-end puppet theater of the 18th century. And so not much of Judy stuff, but much higher-end uh, uh, things, uh, often uh, puppet versions of Henry Fielding plays. Uh, and and again, with the prints, I suspect that maybe that slight distance that from the body that uh, printing allows uh, clears a space for certain kind of play is harder to do with live performance, harder to do with uh, drawing some other performance more intimately tied to it. I know 
that there is material out there on Kerfel, the one we did, the color uh, copies of it. And so, and I think I'm one of the other ones. Uh, so I think maybe higher end of the uh, imitations, which are some of the ones that tend to be a, a generation or two rather than six removed from the Hogarths. Uh, I haven't done that work yet, but I, I think it would be useful. I'm not sure how far ultimately we can go. Because when we have uh, there are a lot of things that are unsigned, or you have uh, a set that are done by TV, and then they get copied by other hands. Uh, there's, I was looking at a 1746 later edition of one of the poetic versions the other day, and uh, I think that's a copy of a copy of TV's copy, of Kirkwell's copy, of so on and so and I don't know whether all those people are even traceable, but I think you're right that figuring out something about <clears throat> the human agents involved could provide some useful advantage on all the other kinds of agents I'm trying to look at. So this question is, is asked, I'm going to ask it so you can answer it, hardcore green history or in terms of cultural studies. Um, but I'm interested in the inflection point when a technique goes from a singularity to like a group, right? So I'm thinking about the woodblock cutters. And one reason this might be happening is there's not demand for geometric diagrams that supports more than one person kind of making a living doing this. Um, with the copy books, right, there was originally a few and then eventually expanded because I think the children were learning it or more people wanted to have handwriting. In Hogarth, we have the same thing, where you have the Hogarth thing, and then suddenly we get copies and copies and copies of Hogarth, and this invents kind of a concept of the Hogarthian satire, which outlives him, and there's like this mimicry that happens when you think about the handwriting, which is like, you've now embodied it, and now you have like a mini Hogarth inside of you. <laughs> um, and so what I guess I'm curious about, and take this as like printing history or culture as you like, is what, do you know where that inflection point is when you go from the singularity to the community? And if you don't, what would be your approach to try to find that? Or is that a silly thing to look for? Or maybe that doesn't mean anything. Uh, and I welcome it from everyone who wants to try to answer it. <laughs> I, I, I think, I mean, in the case of Woodblocks, I think it occurs very early on. I mean, there's the famous case of the Rathbow Euclid um, of 1482, uh, where Rathbow thinks he's found a new way of printing diagrams using strips of metal. It died out very quickly. Um, so from the early, 50, early 16th century, um, I think block cutting was, was fairly uniform. And it's very interesting. I mean, the, the, the woodblocks that I've, I've looked at, both for figurative work and for um, Diagram seems to sort of settle down in the, in the, in the 16th century um, into a sort of fairly sort of standard form. It, it seems, I mean, I don't know whether that answers the question, but it does seem as if, and, and as I say, when you're looking at the, the Plantin blocks um, for Aguillon a um, hundred years before the blocks that I was talking about, the style of cutting seems very similar. So there does seem to be a sort of standardization of technique. No, I didn't get a paper, but if I had, it would have been about um, how um, script in convents suddenly becomes very standardized at exactly the same moment 
that guild regulations raise prices, and so suddenly nuns are the new labor for making large numbers of books, whereas before they were just making them for themselves, and then suddenly there's a big market for them outside the convent, so that would be the inflection point. In the United States, at least, or colonies in the United States, um, there's sort of a geographic imperative um, for this sort of new form of instruction um, because of the sort of distributed nature of the population, the lack of um, highly trained instructors. Um, so less of a sort of temporal as opposed to I think the inflection point for the things that interest me and for similar things I worked on in the past, my first book, was about this 18th century fan fiction and interested in uh, readers writing additional adventures for beloved characters and how they tend to cluster. And I think in both cases we have basically kind of but the dynamics of information cascades and feedback loops and other things where uh, something ceases to sort of increase at a steady rate, but you hit a certain point and then really uh, takes off and then more gets more. And I don't know if I could ever put a precise figure on it, but a one-off copy or a one-off reproduction or a one-off sequel doesn't get that going. Two, probably not. Once you start getting like four, five, six, then, then maybe. Uh, there is some kind of tipping point past which all those different kinds of dynamics kick in and you start uh, having almost a gravity uh, to uh, whatever started things and a little craze around it. That was a really satisfying question on which to finish. Thank you so much. It was a, a really stimulating panel.